If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Romans chapter 5, and if you don't, the uh, words are printed in your bulletin, and uh, I did print them again in the New Living Translation just for clarity, but uh, as, I, as I exegete the passage, if there's any differences that need to be pointed out, I will make sure that, that those are done for you. So now hear God's word. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. That's verse 12, I'm sorry. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness for all who receive it will, in triumph, will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's act, one act, of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed, disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them death, now God's wonderful grace instead rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Romans, as I've, I've told you all, is uh, a magnificent letter written by Paul to the church in Rome, to people he had never met. The church in Rome was a mixed body of people, much like our churches are today, mostly Gentiles and Jews. But there was always this misunderstanding between the Gentiles and the Jews of how to be right with God. How do you be just before him or justified before him 
And folks, that's the question, that's the question that every religion in the world is trying to answer. Whatever God they believe, whatever people believe about God or no God, it doesn't really matter. Everyone is setting some standard to be acceptable, either to God, God's, she, eat, he, it, whatever they, whatever that is, people are trying to be right with him. And you can do that a lot of different ways. You can do it by, you know, struggling with your morality or whatever, making your path uh, seem right or whatever. But Paul, the apostle, comes into that environment and he says, no, all of that is idolatry. You cannot save yourself this way. Those things that you trust in are temporal. They're going to go away at some point. And so he's answering questions that everyone in history, human beings from time immemorial, have been asking right up into this day. It is so relevant, it almost knocks you in the head when you read it. We don't think that because we're trying to get our head around law and Moses and all this other stuff that he talks about. But let me tell you, if you just come at it with a clean slate and think about who he was talking to and who is in view now today, us, uh, you'll come away just amazed at the glory of this beautiful letter. He's telling us why the world is the way it is. Why is the world like it is? Why did God create this world the way it is? And I've been telling you week after week, He didn't create the world this way. He created a world that was good, good, and very good. And mankind did something. Adam represented mankind, and they did something to uh, disrupt this world. And we are living in that new world that is our creation. And we need to take responsibility for that because if we don't, we're never going to understand what's going on around us. And some people just relish the idea of pointing fingers at God and saying, man, he, he created this weird world and it's terrible and it's evil and look at all this bad stuff. I, you know, God doesn't do bad stuff. He didn't invent a cross. He didn't invent a war in Ukraine slaughtering civilians. He didn't do any of that. We are doing that. And it's time for us to listen to the words of this letter. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, he begins to explain what's wrong with the world. He said, what we have done as mankind is suppress the truth and replace it with a lie. And look, folks, we do that every single day with some of the smallest things you can imagine. We trust in our money or we trust in our, our education, or we trust in our skill to be able to, to fix this or control that or whatever you want to choose. We're trusting those things, and sometimes it's okay, but we often as human beings take it to an extreme place where if that thing, whatever that thing may be, is taken away from us, our lives come crashing down. And Paul says, there's an answer to this problem of being right with God. We suppress the truth. We replace it with a lie. We worship and serve the creature or the creation. And Paul says, God is only the one, blessed forever. All of this results in what we found earlier in Romans chapter 3, a penalty, guilt, 
guilt for our sin that we cannot pay. We can't assuage that guilt. There's no, there's no currency, no money, no amount that we can repay this debt that we incurred by our unjust um, action towards God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right. Freely makes us righteous. Through Jesus Christ. When, this is Romans 3.23 and following. Through Jesus, when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice, a propitiation. In Greek it's hilasterion. It's the ark that they sprinkled the blood on once a year and made atonement for the people. It was uh, gruesome on one side and beautiful on another side. That we could actually have our sin covered by an innocent, an innocent animal, an innocent goat or lamb. But all of that had in view Jesus Christ. And folks, look, people don't talk about this much today. It's unpleasant to say the least, in the 21st century, in our culture, man, people are just making their own way. They define their own identity with he, she, it, them, they. I mean, it's just, it's nutty. And this is not new. Don't think, oh, this is brand new. The culture that, that he wrote this into was more bizarre than anything you can imagine. And so it's relevant right now. Even as you read the news streams and you go, gosh, the world is just upside down. No, it's not. It's always been upside down. Since Adam and Eve took the fruit, it's been upside down. And Jesus came to erupt, not erupt like a volcano, but erupt like, like, like a meteor from space coming. He crashed into the world, and with him came the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul is pushing. He's stressing. He says, Adam did one thing, but Jesus did Another. And so Paul, just like we saw in chapter 4, he talks about Abraham. Now he's going to reach back a little further. And he's going to go all the way back to Adam, our progenitor. And whatever you believe about Adam, that's okay. I'm happy to talk to you about the different views of Adam. But Adam was a real person. Somehow, some way, he was a real person and he represented us. I don't know how, it's a mystery. So, Let's look at, at some things this morning. First, the, the whole scope of what we're going to talk about this morning is the universality, the universality of sin's presence and power. All right? Now, these are three P's that you need to remember. Penalty, presence, and power. It's very easy, but Paul addresses all three early on and explains why the world is the way it is. Why mankind is the way it is. Do you ever sit back? Do you commit? I know that probably none of you or very few of you commit sins. But I do. And when I do, I sit back and I go, oh my gosh. Wh wh why did I do that? What has got control of me? How? Why? I thought I was born again. I thought I was a Christian. Do you know what I'm talking about? Say yes, of course you do. Yeah, you know what I'm talking <laughs> Don't pretend. Sin is universal. It affects us all to one degree or another. Some people really struggle. Some people are, you know, they manage their sin pretty well. 
But all of us are struggling to some degree. Paul reaches back into this story of Adam, and he brings it into the present, and he tells us about the universality of sin, its presence, and its power. He already dealt with its penalty. All right, look at verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. Death spread to all because all sinned. So listen to what he's saying. This is a, now I'm, I'm telling you, it's a complex argument, and I hope that you had plenty of coffee this morning because you're going to need it. You've got to be really tracking with him, and I'm going to try to do my best to help us all track. But listen to what he's saying. Sin brought death. Adam and Eve's transgression introduced death into the garden and death to them. And it spread to all the, the, the humanity that sprung from their lives. Okay? Adam's sin didn't spread. That's what he's saying. When, when Adam sinned in the garden, it was his sin alone. And when Eve sinned in the garden, it was her sin alone. God, Paul is not saying that we sinned somehow in Adam, like really. It's just Adam represented us and his sin brought death. And death is what we face. Adam sinned. Sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. Death spread to all because all sinned. We're only culpable for our own sin. And so who doesn't sin? From the time kids are little, you know, when they're little infants and they're just cuddly and all that, um, we don't imagine that they ever commit a sin. And they don't. But all the potentiality for sin resides in them. And unless something is done to pay for that or remove that or cover that, every person is doomed. Well, something has to happen, even in those little ones. Now, Dr. Nash, one of my professors at seminary, wrote a, a magnificent book, a little book, uh, When a Child Dies. And he goes through the scripture, and he and people like R.C. Sproul, they were adamant that children were, uh, not, they were not going to hell. They, they, when they die, they go to heaven. And there's no, not even a question. But other theologians are a little hard, more hardcore and say, well, we can't say that. But here at Christ the King, we're saying that. If a child dies, they go into God's presence, no matter what. Because why? Because God's grace is amazing. He loves to show mercy. He loves to show mercy. We're adults. Most of us, our kids are in the other room, but most of us are adults. How did you get here? How did you get here? By mercy, by grace, by trusting Jesus. Why in the world would He accept you and not some child? Uh, yeah? Help me here. <laughs> I feel like I'm sinking. No, listen. He is full of mercy. He loves to show mercy to the worst of sinners like us. So we can rest assured that He will be just with all human beings regardless. So by virtue of our relationship to Adam, all people are sinners. 
under the sentence of death. Death is both physical and spiritual. Adam didn't die right away, but he did later. And we did, you know, we're going to die sometime. Nobody has escaped death except Jesus. He, is, he didn't escape. He crushed it. He absolutely crushed it. When he went in the grave, he was weak. When he came out of the grave, he was strong. And he had plunged his sword, the sword of his righteousness, into the heart of death, and he killed it. And he killed the power of sin. And then he went to heaven, and he's going to come back again, probably sooner than later, but he's coming back. The presence of sin remains here, and we battle it every day, yes, every day, in one way or another. Sin, our confession and the Bible as well, also call sin a pollution or a corruption. And it comes when we're born, and it stays with us till we die. We're battling that corruption. Listen to what uh, Louis Burkhoff, now if you ever, I don't know if any of you, I know Dawson has, and maybe some of the others here in our church have read uh, the commentary by Louis Burkhoff. It's painful, it's like this big, and it's just a systematic theology, theology that is magnificent. Um, listen to what he says about this, because it really helps us. Scripture, the Bible, and experience, just our lives, looking around ourselves. Scripture and experience both teach us that sin is universal. And according to the Bible, the explanation for this universality lies in the fall of Adam. Just like he used Abraham to show us how righteousness is imputed, now he's reaching and showing us how Adam brought sin and sin brought death. It's just amazing. These two points, listen carefully, the universality of sin and the connection of Adam's sin with that of mankind in general calls for our consideration. We have to think about it because it's why the world is the way it is and why God left His church here in the presence of sin. What are we doing here? Why are we here? What is your role in this? It's magnificent. They call for our consideration. While there has been rather general agreement as to the universality of sin, there have been different representations of the connection between the sin of Adam and that of his descendants. So, that, com that complicates. But what he's saying is, we don't know how. We know that sin is here. We don't know how it's transmitted you know, uh, theologians have wrestled with that. Nobody's come up with a perfect answer. Was it passed on genetically through, through genes and our, you know, regular, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that thing. It, it just, out, you know, us being human beings and making babies. Is it, tra is it transferred genetically? Is it something, is it a learned behavior? Do you have to learn how to sin or what is it? Understand, nobody knows. This is the mystery of iniquity. How it gets in there and why it's there and its power and its presence and the penalty is clear from Scripture and we can see it in our culture. I mean, bad people go to jail, hopefully. And they're, they're, they're punished, appropriate to their crime. This is something that is innate. 
in every human being we understand. And we wonder sometimes, how did Adam represent me? I didn't commit his sin. You're not culpable for his sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, folks, that is an unpleasant... uh, No, I'll leave it at that. You're in a church, this Christ the King. We don't apologize for these things. It's our, Our Lord Jesus Christ gave His life for this. Why would we want to water it down or take it away or ameliorate any of its effects? Why would we want to soften this hard thing that Adam brought sin and Jesus came, the second Adam, to destroy that sin, that penalty, presence, and power all by Himself? If you're a Christian, that should be precious to you and not odious, not something you push away. We want to embrace it because it will explain it will explain how greatly, magnificently, wondrously you are loved, valued, and accepted. And you can stop living your life in misery over the terrible consequences of this sin and your own You can enter into a new life and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And the second Adam, this, what this passage is telling us, will destroy those bonds, those chains of darkness. Uh, Folks, I don't know. I, I can't even tell you how magnificent and wonderful this is for us. Bad news, but way more good news. Look at 13 and 14. This is the reign of sin. This is the kingdom of darkness. This is how sin came and got into the world and brought all that it did, death and everything else. People sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because no law was yet given to break. Still, everyone died. Or in the original, it says death reigned. Death was like a kingdom. It reigned. It it got brought in. It was established. And it was king over humanity. And people died. Even if they didn't sin like Adam, they still died. Death was not going to go away. It affected every person on earth except Enoch and Elijah. And we don't really know what happened with those two, but it affected everyone until Jesus. All right? From Adam to Moses, even those who did not disobey explicit commands as Adam had done. Why? Because God didn't need, after the Garden of Eden, folks, think with me. After the Garden of Eden, they were expelled from the Garden. So they're out there. And they're making babies. And their babies are sinning and growing up and being big bad sinners like Cain and Abel. And then everybody after them. That's what all those genealogies are tracking. Sin and righteousness and God's action in the world. Okay? I know this is a little bit heavy, but stay with me. This will help you, I promise. So death is reigning. Why is God holding humanity guilty? Because we suppress the truth and replace it with a lie. Ever since the world was created, people have seen. You see, every human being can go outside and look 
you know, most people, and look at the, the, the sky and the stars and the, the billions of galaxies and the trillions of, the numbers are staggering and it goes so far and we look even here on this earth, if you go from out there to here and you start looking and looking deeper and deeper and many of you are doctors and scientists and well-educated, our church is full of well-educated people, even me. Malcolm Muggeridge said, we have educated ourselves into imbecility. <laughs> but even if you come back and you start looking at the glory of creation and you look at your body and how it's made and the, the thinking and who we are, and, you know, how do we understand things and reason? Folks, there's no denying that God exists. And that's what Paul said in that first chapter of Romans. He said, we look at the scar, we see what it's around. We know, there's a, we know there's an invisible God and we suppress that truth and replace it with a lie. We don't have to be guilty of Adam's sin. Nobody I know of in this room took the fruit. You don't even know what kind of fruit. I think it was a kiwi because they're terrible. You know, to get to the good part, you got to deal with the yucky part. And that's sometimes just, No. I'm pretty sure that was what it was. But look what he says. Even though the sin is reigning, he says sin is reigning, death is reigning, Satan has brought this, or Adam with Satan's help, brought this evil into the world. There is a beginning of hope. Look at verse 14, the second part of 14. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. What he's saying is, now you need to look at Adam as real as he is, but you have to think in terms of his, 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 sim, his symbolic nature. What was Adam in all this redemptive history? What did he represent? And what did he mean? What, what was the meaning of him beyond just the fact that he is the progenitor of humanity. And look at what Paul does. This is stunning, but again, it's a little confusing. And so I put it in the NLT and I broke it down. I'm going to try to explain. So listen carefully. We can go through this really fast. He contrasts, compares, he sets parallel to one another Adam's disobedience, which ended, listen carefully, Adam's disobedience, which ended in Sin and death. And he enumerates that in these next few verses. And then right along with them, he couples them with what Jesus, as the second Adam, Jesus' obedience, which produced, listen carefully, it produced righteousness and life. Righteousness and life. You can't get righteousness on your own. You can't. You can't perform well enough. You can't. You don't have enough currency. We do not have the ability to make ourselves right with God. No matter what anybody thinks, you just can't. People spend their whole lives frustrated and anxious. Am, am I going to be okay? Instead of being sure and positive, not because of you holding on to Him, but because of Him holding on to you. That is the whole theme of this book. The whole theme of this letter is he's got you. 
Not that you got him. He's holding you, and you slip, and you, you know, it's not a knot that you tie in a rope and hold on for dear life. No, it's a cord, cords of love that God has wrapped around you and made so secure that nothing and no one can break them. And that's the assurance that we should have. And when we sin, when we sin that should not break our assurance. That should, he's going to say it in a minute. We, it doesn't mean that you can presume on His grace, but because of His grace, you can run to Him and not have to make up for that new sin. Listen to what Adam's disobedience did. I've, I've broken him down. You can follow, and I'll, I'll show you how, how it is. Hopefully it's helpful. Verse 15, he says it brought death, or you can write penalty. Death is the penalty for sin. In 16 and 18, he talks about the word condemnation, which is also means penalty. We're condemned, we're under condemnation. In verse 17, Adam's sin caused death to rule. In other words, death has power. Every human being that's alive faces death with a certain amount of fear because it's unknown. And with it, you know, R.C. Sproul died uh, 75, 78 years old. I can't remember now. Uh, but he died a terrible death, very painful, many years. He had a stroke and then all kinds of, of awful diseases till, uh, till he died in 2017. And R.C. was interviewed on the radio. He was one of my professors, and I, I, he influenced my life to a degree I can't even describe. But nevertheless... In a radio interview, they asked him if he was afraid to die. And R.C. said this, and I tell you, it just blew my mind. He said, I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of dying. He couldn't put on his own socks. Vesta, his wife, was dressing him and all of the other stuff that goes along with that. I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of dying. What a statement. And I think that is true for all of us. Many of us as Christians, we're not afraid of death. We know that Jesus is going to rescue us, but what about the rest? What about living in this life with all of its misery and pain and sorrows and struggles? How are you going to make it? You are going to make it only by understanding what Jesus did. Adam's disobedience brought sin and death. We know that. He represented us somehow. I don't get it, but we're still sinning, folks, and we're still dying. What did Jesus' obedience accomplish? It accomplished righteousness and life. And there's two, two uh, terms that, that I hope you all will, will write down and, and think about. Righteousness of Jesus is both active and passive. That's something you need to know. This is a, the, I don't, you know, theology sometimes can be a little bit Hard to get your head around. But active and passive righteousness. His active righteousness was obeying the law. Nobody had done it. Nobody does it still. He obeyed the law. He did everything that was required. He came to the Garden of Gethsemane and begged his father if there's some other way. And there was no answer from heaven for probably for the first time in his life. Just blackness, darkness, the world closing in around him. He knew what was ahead. We don't know what's ahead for us. I have no idea what's ahead for me. He knew. 
And he looked into that horror and he said, your will be done. That's your Savior. That's your King. That's the second Adam, the one that now represents us. That's his active righteousness. His passive righteousness is when those soldiers came and they took, brutally took him, brutally. We have no idea how brutal and cruel it was and fearful and everybody left him. And he was alone and his father wasn't answering. But he let himself be taken. You see, he told his disciples, I have an army, I have a host waiting. And they could come down here and destroy this world, but then you and I would have been destroyed. And instead, he tells them no. They came when he was born. And they beat their shields and said, you're not going to touch this one until he's finished. And they couldn't. That army, that host of God was with him every day. But not then. That's his passive obedience. He let himself go. And what did that do? Look at 15 and 16, the second part. God's gracious free gift, grace, forgiveness, being made right with God, or in the original, it's justification. Beautiful. Verse 17, God's wonderful grace and free gift of righteousness to all who will trust Him. They will live. Listen, folks, you've got to hear this. They will live in triumph. Or, better translation, they will reign in life. You see, Adam brought the, the death that is reigning. Jesus brought a reign, a kingdom of life. And it's here now. And the church is the representation of that kingdom. We're not the kingdom of God, but we are the agents that are to go out and proclaim that kingdom to the world. Yes? That's, our whole life is supposed to do that. Look at verse 18. Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship or justification with God and new life. If you are here today and you are born again, you have repented of your sin and asked Jesus to uh, accept you and, and to free you from that sin uh, and are trusting Him, then you have a new life. Not an old, it's gone. The old nature, dead. But the presence of sin remains. And we'll talk about that in the next few chapters. The summary you find in verse 19. One person disobeyed, many became sinners. One obeyed, many became righteous. Now just so you know, that passage is from Isaiah 53. Both times, 15 and 19, he says this. He is reaching back, Paul is, into the prophet Isaiah to the greatest chapter in your Bible, 53. And he's quoting it exactly because of his experience, talking about Jesus. My righteous servant, God is saying he was his righteous servant, will make possible for many to be counted righteous. In other words, what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection is why we can be counted righteous. Sin's presence may remain but its power 
is broken. We're going to see that in chapter 6. And chapter 7 explains why its presence is still here. And chapter 8 and forward, how we're to live because of that. See, these first few chapters, folks, there's not a lot about, you know, go do this and go do that and be this and be that. There's just not. Paul is laying an incredibly deep and rich and solid foundation before he ever says to anyone, go do this. And folks, that's why Christianity stumbles, I think, a lot. It's because we don't have that foundation. We don't realize that Jesus did this for us. And when we accept Him, He comes in and creates new life in us and a new way of living, a new way of looking at the world, new way of looking at everything, our marriage, our work, our politics, our health, our bodies. A new way to look at, at blue whales and Amazon forests. And, you know, the minute I say that, somebody, oh my God, he's a liberal. Well... You know, God said, be fruitful and multiply and take care of this world, not exploit. And we don't know the difference. But you as Christians can know the difference. And you can say there's a limit to how much money we need to make off of this world and start thinking about what do we need to do to steward the creation, not make it a religion. Same thing with politics, same thing with everything, same thing with our career. We start to learn how to balance life and make it make sense because of the experience and the price that Jesus paid for you and as you. Let me finish with this. The first sermon that I ever heard R.C. Sproul preach, I think is what, I think I've been born again like ten times. You know? Uh, when, when Scott and I were working out in the gym, I would tell Scott that, you know, we were actually born again before the foundation of the world. We just have to catch up with it, you know, later. Didn't I tell you that? And uh, here's his sermon. And when I heard it, folks, I wept. I wept. I listened to it again. I wept again and I wept again and I wept again until it was just overwhelming. Throughout his whole life, Jesus is exposed to temptation. And that's why I, R.C. Sproul, continue to emphasize that we are saved not only by the death of Jesus, his passive obedience of Christ, but also by the life of Jesus, his active obedience. Because it is in his life, listen, of perfect obedience that Christ fulfills all the terms of the law. All the terms of the first covenant that He made with Adam. All the terms of humanity's promises that God made to humanity. But obey me, He said in the garden. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of God. Obey me and you will eat from the tree of life and you will have my life in you. Jesus came and He did all that. He fulfills all the terms laid down in the original covenant of works. So in the final analysis, here it is. This is it. In the final analysis, we see that we are saved by works. We're saved by works. 
And you could hear in this recording the people in the church gasp. It was a large church and they gasped when R.C. said, We're saved by works. Make no mistake. You say, Wait a minute, R.C. I thought we taught justification by faith alone. Yes. Yes, we are. But justification by faith alone means justification by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because Christ alone has fulfilled the covenant of works. And then he said, we're saved. He told this whole group of Reformed people, we're saved the old-fashioned way by works. But they're not your works. They're His. They're His. Folks, when you step out of church and you think, what do I have to do? What is required of me by God? To trust Him. That's what's required of you. Because we're saved the old-fashioned way. By works. And they're not your works. They're His. So why in the world wouldn't we want to go out this door and live our lives for Him and trust Him in everything, no matter what it is? Trust Him. Will you do it? That's what Paul is saying. Trust His works so that you can work, not so that you have to. So you have the privilege of going out and trusting Him with everything.